Final Night Poetry Slam. I want to sew the world into its sheets. I want to beat it with a bat until the warning sticks. A handgun is a machine. I'm tired of holding the wounded animal of my heart and instructing it on how to bleed. All I see are stars in the mouth of a tiny ghost. Hello and welcome back to the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. My name is Eddie Eifler and I will be your guide through this week's trials and tribulations of Poetry Slam here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, So if you want to know what happened, how it happened, who was involved, if you want to get to know the people behind the poetry, you're in the right place. However, there was not a slam at the Mercury Cafe this Sunday due to plumbing issues. So this is going to be a little bit of a different podcast for you. A little bit of a departure. In fact, I'm not going to review anything. I put up a Facebook thread where I encourage people to put down any topics that they would like me to address. So I'll be telling you some stories based off of that thread. I'll tell you stories about what I've seen poets get booed off stage, uh, the pros and cons of being on a poetry team, uh, pros and cons of poetry teams that have the same team members year after year, and of course... By special request, I'm going to talk about the great and almighty cactus. So there's a lot to cover here. And of course, we've got an amazing feature for you. Before we get to that amazing feature, I do want to say thank you so much again to Mary McDonough. Our interview from last week uh, was so great, so gracious. And uh, we're doing all the big things here. We're doing all of the National Poetry Slam things. And all of those things run through Mary McDonough. So thank you again for donating your time and being so open. This week's interview is with Toluwa Nimi Obiwale. Now, Toluwa is a two-time member of both Minor Disturbance and Slam Nuba, and is also the co-slam master of Slam Nuba with Andre Carbonell, a.k.a. Hakeem Furious. Uh, she was the first ever Denver Youth Poet Laureate, the first person to ever hold that position, and she co-wrote and co-produced the show how I Got Over with Susie Q. Smith, Janae Elise, Rolanda Simmons, and Bianca McCann. So, without any further ado, here is your interview with Toluwa. Our guest this week is none other than Toluwa, the co-slam master, current competing member, and first ever youth poet laureate of Denver, Colorado, co-slam master of Slam Nuba and competing member of Slam Nuba. How are you, Tolua? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm so glad you could join us today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I could join you too, even though my phone is blowing up. Blowing up, because you're so popular. (laughs) It's been hard just trying to pin down this interview. I'm so glad that we're doing it. (laughs) So, uh, like I said, I think we're going to just start at the beginning, I would love for you to tell our listeners how you first got into poetry and how that made its way into Poetry Slam. Wow, yeah. So I actually, I've been writing for a long time, ever since I was a little girl. I never really called it poetry. I never knew really what that, I knew what it was. Like I'd read Shakespeare and Keats, Yeats, all those old dead people. And... um 
I'd, I'd definitely had a respect for them, but I'd never written poetry to say out loud. So the first time I'd ever written poetry to say out loud was on Hooked on Colfax. And the first night that I went to Hooked on Colfax, one of my very best friends uh, said, oh, my good friend Kevin Cantor is uh, doing a little feature at Hooked on Colfax. Let's go. And we went to high school with Kevin. And uh, so my friend dragged me to the basement, and I sat there, and I was mesmerized. And I was like, okay, I, I got to go again. And so the next time I went, um, there's a poet featuring there named John Sands. And John Sands is now pretty much my favorite poet. <laughs> I absolutely love John Sands. And he inspired me so much with the way he would just tell stories. He was just telling his stories and people were listening they're <laughs> actually listening to him and uh they just they said you know we have a workshop you can come beforehand before the feature poet shows up so i started going to that and i think that's where i met you and piper yeah. uh, that's first memory i have mm-hmm. of you is in the basement hooked on colfax yep <laughs> and, and to paint a little bit of a word picture here uh hooked on colfax in the basement had what were they? Velvet walls. Yeah, it was extremely dark. It was kind of like a dungeon. Yeah, the, the the like leather couches <laughs> that we would have to rearrange every single time we were down there. Yeah, but yep. like it was a cool little spot. It maybe was. maybe enough to fit thirty people. Oh yeah, maybe you could not fit yeah. more than thirty people down there. But yeah, I, that's where really I saw all of the people that I know now. That's where I met Ken, Kyle Sutherland, you and Piper, Lucifiori. Uh, Amal Kassir, that's where I met everyone, <laughs> and it was such a beautiful, beautiful beginning. So how did that transition into Poetry Slam for you? Ah, so the first night I read the first poem that I ever read out loud, they were like, oh my gosh, you have to come to the Youth Slam! So I went to the Youth Slam, and I ended up taking second place, and I was like, oh, okay, Maybe I can do this. This isn't so nerve-wracking when I get up there. It was still extremely nerve-wracking. I remember I could barely read because my hands were shaking so much with the paper. Um, Eventually, I went to so many youth slams that they, I believe it was Brando, (laughs) who came up to me and was like, you know, you should try out for the youth team. And I thought, what? Me? Brando? Are you, you, Brando, telling me that I can go out for the youth team? It was magical. Um, so I did. I went to the Grand Slam. It was the first time I met Dominique Christina and Ayinde. And that whole night for me, it was amazing. Ken gave one of his pep talks. He was like, every word you say is magic. And I went up there and literally poured out my soul and really got to see and realize what performing poetry and giving of yourself in that manner, what it really meant, and so from then on, that was like uh, 2012. That was the year after Anuba had just won the national title. Yeah. And well, I made the 2013 team. I started okay. reading 2012 and made the 2013 team. Okay. And what was that experience like for you, being on that youth team? Oh, it was amazing. Uh, I believe that year it was me, Stephen, Isabel, Andy. Maddie, of course, Maddie Kramer, Maddie Kramer. love of my life, Maddie Kramer, <laughs> light of my world, um, but yeah, that team was amazing, we, I grew up, yeah. <laughs> I definitely grew up that year, uh, we, the types of poems that we were writing, 
we got so so in depth and deep into it and we really got to know each other through that so many trials and errors it felt like we were together for almost a year like it was a long time that we developed as a team and BNV was such an amazing life-changing experience so what was BNV like ah uh, yeah the brave new voices festival that it was unlike anything i'd ever been to before just the de-emphasis really on the competition like sure we ran our poems we still got together as a team but there was so much and part of it was because a lot of these activities were mandatory for us as the youths and we had to get get up at seven in the morning um but there was so much focused on bonding learning learning how to cultivate your own spaces when you get back home how to go beyond bnb how you know poetry isn't just one little niche you can apply it to any part of your life mm -hmm. seeing that really really resonated with me and i was like okay poetry i'm in it what were some of the notable poems from that year because I, I i wasn't really involved in in minor disturbance at this time i i probably went to a couple of shows you had but you tell me what were some of the big poems that you guys worked on that year? oh for minor disturbance yeah. well I know me and Maddie, we worked on this poem, uh, I think it was called For Our Future Sons, where we were talking about, we were talking about toxic masculinity and how we, as, you know, potential future mothers, were going to combat that. They will kiss, hold, shine, do the love, love. And that was one where I had really allowed my own rage to build and I was really exploring like okay what can I do with all of this anger what can I do with all of this you know opposition that I have to toxic masculinity so that was amazing and then um, Andy Stephen and I believe it was Maddie they had a group piece oh there were so many amazing group pieces out of here uh they had a group piece uh about god and like questioning like where uh questioning their own paths with god and how like their own uh perceptions of god were changing that was amazing and uh steven and i had this poem about language and accents and uh <laughs> that's, that's what i remember from that year yeah because he's samoan yeah and uh, i if i'm not mistaken you guys incorporated both yeah. of your languages into that yes indeed, that indeed. was the the lion king one right? yeah <laughs> yes. yeah and about like having to be like that articulate brown or black person in the room all the time and really having to be like yo i had to give up so much in order to get here and I still have this language this accent as part of my identity and that is also important um oh Isabella Maddie had this group piece called bitch and that was incredible a malicious or spiteful woman to be lewd or immoral a classification of women as nothing more than dogs in heat packs of bleeding wolves ripe for the taking bitch, bitch is worse than whore rather be over sexualized than outspoken he said i have too many opinions that my mother forgot to teach me young women must earn the right to speak them it was it was not just like an exploration of the etymology of the word it was like the etymology of the word how this word has been used against us, reclamation of the word, and 
it was so well written and so well performed. Oh my goodness, there were just there were so many. Um, Maddie had this poem called "God Likes Me Better," and it was a cold piece. Yeah, like she would, and we almost like feared for her emotional safety because she'd go up and she'd stand there and in a monotone voice deliver this poem that was a persona piece of like a white christian american and it was just chilling and it was, it was very detached it was that. it was more just very matter of fact very plain mm-hmm. yeah. and which is what i love the most about it because then the words really have more of an impact because it's like oh my god she's saying all of these things so matter of factly and there's so many people who believe that matter of factly about themselves and um, I absolutely love that about her poem. And she and Stephen also did this group piece where she sang, and he did this poem about um, his Samoan heritage. And oh, that poem! Every time I even think about it, it makes me want to cry. <laughs> and I believe your your big gun that year was the one of, uh, about your name and about yes. wanting to change your name. Yes, Talk I did. I definitely. That was actually. After seeing John Sands at Hooked on Colfax uh, in 2012, I went and I had a conversation with my mom. Like, we were just talking on the phone and stuff about my name started coming up and she was telling me the story of her name and I just wrote it that night and it really hadn't been edited at all since. Your name may not be refined like sugar that slips through the cracks of your fingers, but it is in fact the sugar cane that men must break their teeth on before being rewarded with the sweetness. Your name holds weight. Every syllable is a beat from the talking drum that your ancestors danced to. Like that was like really the first poem that I wrote to perform in front of anyone and I was like, Ken, are you sure about this? Like, <laughs> this poem literally has never been edited. He was like, go do it. Just tell them the story. And I'm like, <laughs> and it worked. And I still, I still do that poem at shows. So it was 2013. Mm. Um, what, what did the team finish that year? Did you guys win that year? Yeah, we won in 2013. And how did that affect you personally like was it just business as usual when you came back here did you have more opportunities did you see things in a different way did you maybe change your art how did that experience change you um but that year I was still pretty young I was about 17 still uh, I still hadn't turned 18 I turned 18 when we got back from BNB um but that I didn't really know what it meant to win BNB. All I knew was that when they announced us, like I remember being on stage and they were like doing the, you know, in fourth place, third place, second place. And I remember thinking after second place, I was like, they haven't called our name yet. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go. Did they forget? Yeah, yeah, I literally I was like, did they forget to call our name? They didn't call our name yet. And they were like first place and we all stood there like, what? Because, <laughs> like, we hadn't even been paying attention, really, to the scores, so we didn't know where we were placing. <laughs> and so when they said first place, we are like, oh, okay, cool. And when we got back, uh, it was more of, like, an internal, like, team confidence booster where we were like, oh, my goodness, we did this as a team. We did this together, and I really think that solidified all of our friendships on the team, and we still love each other to this day. 
Um, but it also encouraged me personally to write more. Like, okay, you know, I did this. I did it well. Even if I didn't do it well, I'd still want to write. But this really gives me the confidence that, okay, I can go deeper. I can really hone my skills, my writing, you know, being able to talk in front of other people, really uh, being able to practice that. I feel BNB gave me the confidence to do that. Cause I don't really know if anyone even remembers that we won in 2013, um, except us, <laughs> which is like, it's totally fine. Cause it wasn't like, oh, we, we come back and we're the heroes of the town and everybody knows who we are. Now we're like these little kids who went <laughs> to BNB and did something cool. But at the same time, it was more of, whoa, we did this. <laughs> so it was more about you personally and mm -hmm. not, not any kind of like outside anything. Like oh that. yeah, definitely. So that's 2013. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about 2014. 2014, I was on, I went out for minor disturbance again. And um, this time I was like more confident in my writing and uh, the, I guess, big piece or whatever, the piece that I was really most proud of that I had written that year was, um, I don't even think I titled it. I think r up until this day, it's still called According to My Upbringing, um, this poem about my journey of girlhood and then being on the edge of womanhood and what does that mean for me um, and all of the lessons that I had learned about myself. There were words my auntie believed a little girl should never yell, like no. No is too much of a sinkhole, stretches her mouth and fills it with sand. No one wants a girl with more rocks than all the stars inside her ready to throw. I think that was a really big piece that showed up in, for me in 2014. But the 2014 team, uh, I was the oldest on the team, I was 19, and uh, the rest of the team was Alexis uh, Vigil, Diego Flores, Ashia Ajani, Abby Friesen Johnson, and, uh, oh yeah, me. <laughs> we didn't have, I don't think we had an alternative that year come with us, no. Um, but that year was, it was a challenge uh, because we were all, we, we were all really good writers, but we were all also very busy. And so it was harder to meet that summer. It just seemed, it was weird. The previous summer, it seemed like all of our schedules and practice times met up a little bit more because we would spend probably close to 40 hours a week with each other. <laughs> In 2013, but in 2014, we didn't get to spend as much time with each other, um, which was still fine, but that team, that year we took fourth place, and that team was still a really phenomenal team. Like, we were, it was really like a bunch of brainiacs on the team, so a lot of it was like really kind of like highbrow, getting into some really like high concept uh, writing, which I loved, and I felt nice and challenged by dear applicant of ethnic origin congratulations you've been accepted to white prestigious university we saw your face and loved it however there are a few things you should know the admissions office has heard your story thousands of times prompt write about an experience indicative to your growth translation in 600 words make the university believe that you can make up for your color i feel like 
that team we had, there were so many complications and tensions on the team that it didn't, like, even when we came back from BNV, it didn't seem like we were a team. Hmm. You didn't have that same kind of experience as you did before? Not really, no. But it wasn't until after we had that experience and we had all gone through all the turmoil and the fighting and the disjointedness that we, outside of the competition, we started meeting up together Hmm. and hanging out with each other. And that's where we really bonded. And that's why, you know, the 2014 team were still close today. So after BNV was over. Yeah, it was after BNV was over is when we really, it felt like we were really becoming a team where we were solidifying friendships. And you think that was just because your schedules were weird, you didn't have a whole lot of time together leading up to it? I think it was that and like the group dynamics because there were so many different personalities on the team. (laughs) And uh, so many people who had opposing views on things, which was great for the writing and for the conversations that we had, but not necessarily for the group dynamics. So that it was a little bit more rough, that team, but it was it was still a great experience. Okay. So 2015 is when you make the leap to New adults. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, over. adulting was a rude awakening. So talk to me about that 2015 team. Um, so I... It was funny, the Grand Slam for the Nuba team, uh, I had driven back from California that day to be able to make, (laughs) like I was rolling into town, like right as the sign up list was like going down, I was like, I made it, let me sign up please. And uh, that year, uh, Aaron Bradley was slamming too, and Aaron actually made the team as the fifth member, and I was the alternate, and then Aaron went and joined the Merc, and I got on Nuba and uh, that team I I had always I've always been excited to write with other femme people like I love it when there's like a balance of gender identity and energy on the team I love it when there's a balance but I was the only fat person on the team (laughs) it was not the case (laughs) it was not the case Um, but we still we still were able to get really close as a team that year it was me Franklin Hoser, Johnny, oh wait, me, Franklin, me, Franklin, Hoser, Johnny, Confidence, and then uh, Ryan, and Confidence had to drop a little later, so Ryan ended up being our uh, fifth team member, he was the alternate. That team was interesting too, because we were all in very different stages of our lives, all Mm. dealing with so many different things, and uh, nationals I feel like with Nuba there's always been like this pressure to be great as with all of the Denver teams there's this pressure to be great because all of the Denver teams are amazing all the Colorado teams are amazing and are always they when we show up anywhere we show up (laughs) with and we get the work done and so I feel like there is this pressure from previous Nuba successes to write those poems do those things First time I asked my mother for a perm, she nearly cried. Morning hands baptized my hair in chemical relaxer. So straight my bones could feel the recolonization. Maybe now my skin won't be a brick through their window. The mirror warned me I looked like a thief. I stole my body back with a pair of scissors. And uh, we tried. We got some really great poems out of it. Um, we didn't make semis, and I was fine with not making semis. Um, 
but it almost felt like oh no we're the failing Muba team but that wasn't true at all that wasn't true at all um well as I remember, <laughs> the, the biggest struggle with you guys was a, a real lack of direction. Oh, yeah. We didn't have a coach. Yeah. We, like, we went through so many coaches. And I, that's kind of been the story of the past three years. Is Nuba can't pin down a coach. Why do you think that is? I honestly, I don't know. Uh, I think part of it is that Nuba always has people on the team that are doing a bazillion, gajillion other things. And so all of the focus is not necessarily on the team. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I feel like also the past three years, it's kind of been the same combination kind of of people. You had some definite themes coming yeah. through because Johnny's been on the last three. Yeah, right? and uh, Hoser. <laughs> and Theo's been involved in some way, shape, or form yeah. for a while. Like he... He sort of kind of coached in mm-hmm. <laughs> in 15. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was, I think that's part of it. And then also the people on the team, too, are touring, are doing their life things, are, uh, you know, being prolific, talented poets who can not show up to practices, write something, come together, and have it be amazing. Like, that's possible for us. That doesn't mean that we should be doing it, but uh, it's definitely the combination of the team has always been amazing writers who can write, produce something, and no matter what, it'll be awesome. But I feel like that team spirit and that team energy is, for me, it's the most important thing, is having a good group of people where you learn to love and trust each other. And from what I can tell, that's one of the more jarring differences between an a, adult team and a youth team. Because mm-hmm. like you said, that first youth team, you were around each other all the time. And it's easier to do that when you're that age. Mm-hmm. You don't always necessarily need to worry about a job or yeah. you know whatever. Like you're on summer break from school, so you've got all this disposable time. But when you're an adult, you got, <laughs> you got responsibilities. Yeah, to you got care. rent yeah. to pay. You got yeah. like cars breaking down. And then you've got to also figure out how to carve out, you know, 20 some odd hours a week mm-hmm. for this thing. Like yeah. For, for this slam team. Absolutely. And so it's a lot tougher, for sure. Absolutely. And I think, like, from my perspective, because I came and helped you guys, like, really mm-hmm. late in the game in 2015. Because I would always talk to Johnny, and I was yeah. always like, hey, how's it going? And he's always like, man. <laughs> yeah, it was rough. It was real rough. Was like, oh, was, we can't figure out a coach, and we can't, we've got all these ideas, but we can't do anything with them. And so I was yeah, like, like, you guys just want me to come in? Because <laughs> it's so much harder when you're writing and you're close to your writing to be able to critique each other without it being personal. And it's not, it's not even a malicious thing. It's just... It's almost like poet nature. Like, I'm an artist, I'm sensitive about my shit, and you're also a teammate, and we're all bringing ideas together. There has to be someone who is removed from the writing to be like, nah, kill that puppy, or nah, get rid of that word, or no, that's a dumb idea, don't do that. Hmm. There needs to be someone uh, to direct that. Uh, And it's hard (laughs) when you don't have that person. Um, But, yeah, even... Like, and then the next year, my thing was that I will not be on the team if there are no other femmes on the team. So I go out with the team, and there are other femmes going out. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited. What if we all make the team together? And uh, there was one femme who made the team but then had to drop. And so I was 
Again. Again. <laughs> Boy <laughs> Me, <Island over> Johnny, <laughs> Franklin, Jose, Andre, all of that. And we didn't even get to go to Nats in yeah. 2016. That was So that was that hard. Was some bullshit. It was <laughs> like halfway through the summer, we've got like seven group pieces yeah. written and like in the writing process. And we're like, okay, we, we can do this. And all of a sudden, it's like, we can't go to naps. Right. We're like, oh, man. Like, you, don't, you don't get to compete because of this dumb rule <laughs> that we've never, ever had to follow oh, before. Right. Ever. It was, I was like, wait, what? I'd never even heard of it before. <laughs> we started. But, but in the uh, midst of all this, you are the first youth poet laureate of oh, yeah. Colorado. Oh, yeah. There Tell was me. that. There was that. That was, that was interesting because I had thought that there would be... It was a new program, so I was like, okay, there's going to be people in place, da-da-da-da-da, direction, and there wasn't, which meant, and Ken, bless his heart, I love him, he's, you know, I'm sure he likes to keep the his locations nebulous, but he is on the other side of the world. Yes. <laughs> he's on another continent, yes. and so he could only, you know, do so much, and plus he was in school, getting all of that, doing his own artist thing, so it was really hard to run the whole program. And while I did have some help, I really, that was the year where I really had to figure out, okay, how am I gonna book gigs for myself? How am I gonna, like, you know, manage all of these emails that I'm getting every single day, figure out a legacy project, you know, also do school, but also go and be able to be present at these performances. That was very difficult. I, for the vast majority of the time, I did not do it well hmm. because I was expending so much of myself. I was in the hospital three times, you know, because I was overworking my body and my mind and I wasn't, you know, taking breaks. Like, I do 20 to 30 shows a month wow. and not really have any kind of break, like, just be going, 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 going. That was extremely difficult, um, but... That and school, and eventually a team. And, mm -hmm. and, and doing and the team whatever. in the summer, like, yeah. that was really hard. But eventually I had to be, I had to learn all the lessons, grow all the way up. Yeah. I'm still growing up and learning all the lessons, but I had to grow all the way up and be like, okay, prioritize. What can I do and what can't I do? That was mainly DYPL for me, was figuring that out. <laughs> Because, as I understand, the, the position itself is not like a, a, a paying gig, but it does open you up to a lot of opportunities for come do this show, come to that show. Yeah. And you're right. You, a lot of that stuff you have to just learn, you know, and it can be a, a costly <laughs> education. Oh, sometime. yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember you talking to the team when you were like, yeah, the, I've got this gig set up through the Youth Poet thing, but they said they don't want to pay me, even though they paid these people last year yeah do it and there was that being the youth poet laureate a lot of the times people think okay you're young you're gonna be paid in experience let's pay you in experience and I'm like I've already been doing this for two years like I've like got a little bit of experience I need to be paid in actual monies because right. <laughs> I'm an adult now and I have to pay bills let me just write this experience <laughs> check for my yes you know like <laughs> give that, that. Yeah. experience dollars yeah. that is the amount on the check but <laughs> nah, like they really, they really saw me as okay, youth, not, and I know this wasn't like their malicious intent, but it's automatically youth, not whole person, not important enough right. to pay, right. um, which I really had to fight 
like this past year um it's been a little bit more annoying but like I've really just had to be like okay I'm gonna fight for my pay I'm gonna fight for what I deserve to be paid because it takes work it takes me time and energy and effort to do all of this work for you and uh there were times where I had to say I'm sorry no I can't do this because while you know I believe in this cause and everything my time does not allow for me to volunteer in this way and I've gotten many people who are like well you're just greedy and hungry for money in that case and I'm like no you understand I don't have another job (laughs) this is my job (laughs) this is my work and how I pay my bills is being a poet and performing that is that is what I do because I don't have time to have a real job (laughs) I just don't (laughs) economically being being a professional artist is so weird because society doesn't hold a lot of artistry in high value unless you're like a name, you know, unless you're like a a blockbuster actor or director or something. If you're just a poet or a visual artist or whatever, then society is just like, oh, that's a hobby Mm -hmm. that you can do. Or, you know, we'd love to have you at our event, but you're just a poet, you're just an artist, so you can have these hors d'oeuvres, right, <laughs> and that's yeah. it, right? and you're like, no, actually, this this is a lot of me. And, like, pricing your work, too, because a lot of artists, unless you're a painter and you have something physical to sell someone, even then, a lot of the times, people think that art just kind of shows up everywhere. Right. <laughs> art is just here, and it's always been here, and it will always be here, um, without thinking about the people who produce the art who need to be fed, who need to be paid, because it's not sustainable to have a free art society. It's just not sustainable at all. So that gets us up to this current year. Mm -hmm. What's going on in 2017? 2017 has been a lot of changes, um, just revisiting different things, like after How I Got Over and Now We Just Did, Oh, uh, over, talk to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in 2016, there was this show that I co-wrote with uh, Susie Q. Smith, Rolanda Simmons, Janae Elise, uh, and Bianca McCon about part of the black woman, black femme experience. How I got over, how I got over. And it was an entire play in verse. Like there were characters, scenes, changes, all that, but it was all in verse. And that was an amazingly huge project that like, it took me a while to be able to sit back and be like, whoa, that was an accomplishment. Yeah. Like we wrote and performed a whole play we, that we sold that. out yeah. for like two weekends it was sold out and had to add an extra show that was also sold out. So that was amazing and something that because I'm the type of artist where I don't really like to hang my hat on things very much and like oh I'm still young like I need to push myself and do more and do more but now 2017 I'm learning to revisit to look back on all those things that I've done and be like whoa I've really sown a lot of seeds and so now I'm visiting those back to be like okay this is where I've sown this is where I've sown let's harvest some things let's see where 
I can put my energy towards because being outside of school, having this degree, I'm like, okay, cool, whatever, I have a degree. But more importantly, <laughs> I have free time now. Time, yeah. <laughs> I have all of this time to really invest and make um, my work happen. So 2017 has been full of so many opportunities. I did an artist residency in Aspen in February. Um, I'm doing a, my first writing retreat at Pink Door in New York uh, at the end of the month. Um, I was awarded, I was one of the Roots uh, 25 Young Futurists. Like, it's crazy. Like, I was on a list with Zendaya. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here going, what? <laughs> the degrees of separation. And I'm always so great. I'm so grateful for that and so thankful for that. But there have been so many new opportunities. Like I got to write an article for IO Magazine and I'm gonna continue writing articles for them. And there are a couple other projects that I'm trying to pick up and also being the slam master of Nuba and figuring out new things, new directions that Nuba can go in. So there are now all of these open doors and opportunities, but I'm finding myself in the same place where I'm like, I have to decide, I have to prioritize, what am I going to put my energy to? So you have to triage, right? Because then you just spread yourself too thin and that's not yeah. good for anyone. Absolutely. But yeah, so having to um, really, really understand myself, what I need, what I need to be fed to be full, um, and really paying attention and listening to my whole entire body and my whole entire self. Uh, because for so long it has been, okay, I have this thing, I have this gift, and I want to give it to people, and I want, you know, to help the community out and have them benefit, but I can't be giving from an empty stomach, I really right. can't. You can't just only give, you have to get some back. Yeah, <laughs> and so <clears throat> that that's kind of where I am right now, and so I've slowed down a lot. So I've, like, put a lot of projects on kind of hold, I'm still writing because I'm trying to get uh, my poetry album out by September, working on that currently. Um, but I've definitely slowed down a lot of things um, just so I can have time to be meditative, to take things slow. And many, and a lot of it is that the universe has made me sit down. <laughs> like a lot of things have been put on hold for a reason. Like it's not just me saying, okay, no, I'm going to sit down with this. It's like, no, <laughs> slow down, <laughs> sit down. The universe sits you down. Yeah, the universe sits me down. And that is where I am right now in the sitting and in the waiting and in the be trying to be meditative. And I've started to realize a lot of things like I've really, really been indoctrinated into this American like rat race, like go, 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 get to the next level, be better, hustle, do all of that. And there are aspects of that that are, you know, good, but then a lot of it is just truly despiritualizing. It's like this employee, employer mentality where you're working, 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 working to live. All you are worth is your work and what you do as opposed to actually sitting down and reformulating your life long enough to realize there are other ways to live you don't have to be a slave to corporate america you don't have to be you know a slave to work to effort to giving to putting in in order to be fed you know there are other means and ways of living and that only happens when you slow down long enough to catch it and in America, it's so hard to slow down long enough to catch it. And there's a reason for that, because if everyone was able to slow down enough to catch that, to be like, okay, my work is valuable, 
I am not my work though. I am still a human and a being and I need connection and there are all these other ways to connect and to be fed and to be full. Um, capitalism would not survive. <laughs> it simply would not. Well, especially with the path that you yourself have gone through. You talked about how I got over and being the youth poet laureate. A lot of that is very self-directed and a lot of that is very self-motivated. And you also talked about how a lot of people try to pay you an experience, right? <laughs> but with something like how I got over, you got paid in experience and dollars. You know, it was financially a success, but you got to do all these things that you maybe would never get to do in any other context. You know, put on a show, produce, choreograph, block, you know, promote all these different ways. So uh, those kind of experiences really give you a skill set to be more independent. You know, like if you wanted to put together a one-woman show you would know how to do that. And not only just make it, but you would know who to contact and, and how to put it on and do these things. And that, you don't really have to have a boss to do, right? Oh, yeah. So, like, the, I guess what I'm trying to drive at is is your particular life path has kind of made you a little more self-sufficient than your average, you know, work-a-day American out there. And I feel like I could never go back to that or go into that because it's such a binding, controlling, like, pretty much slave-like mentality to, you know, just be chained to something where you feel like, I have to do this, I have to work, you know, this in order to be, uh, in order to be successful, in order to be fed. Um, And I feel like a lot, well, not a lot, but at least some people in my generation that I know of are sick and tired of the, oh, okay, I go to college, I get out, and I do this job. Because there's so much to life than that, you know? Um, And so I'm really hoping that more people can catch on to that. Because it almost seems like when I tell people, you can work and be free and not have to be a slave to a boss, they're like, oh, no, you're just idealistic. I'd have to start my own business. So I want to go back to more of the poetry-centric stuff. You said that John Sands was a big, like flashpoint for you back in the day. What other types of influences or what other memorable experiences have you had within the context of slam that still kind of like shape you or your artistry today? Man, uh, going to WAUPS this year was, the Women of the World Poetry Slam was amazing. It was incredible. I was kind of there like wide-eyed and doe-eyed like, I don't know what's going on. This is my first time here, but I'm so excited to be here. Um, and just seeing all of these powerful, powerful femme people and non-binary people and women and just having them all together, um, taking and claiming and taking control of their own identities in so many different ways. Like, some people are like, oh, women of the world poetry sign, what kind of poems are you going to hear? Oh, all about women. No, the experience of the woman is so much more dynamic than just poems about being a woman. Um, and so that was really exciting to see and to hear all of the different styles, um, especially since I feel like and I know that if I want to improve and get better in my writing style, I have to read, I have to explore and listen to other people. Um, so definitely going to the Women of the Oral Poetry Sam was, it was an incredible and amazing experience. And also reading... Well, reading, watching, and hearing Warsan share, and the way that, because she wrote a lot of the poetry, pretty much most of the poetry, pretty much all of the poetry, for Beyonce's uh, Lemonade album. And so on Beyonce's album, she had all of these amazing, beautiful verses 
um, and watching a poet whose books, whose chapbooks that I've read and poured over and loved and digested and have been fed by go on and branch outside of anything just slam related, like watching uh, a poet go and write for a musician and watching how visual elements can work with poetry. That has been super inspiring as well. So, one thing we haven't really talked about is the direction of Slam Nuba because it's in transition right mm. now. So tell me about what's going on with Slam Nuba. What's its future looking like? So Slam Nuba, I know, has a future, and as long as as long as there are people there to run it, it will always have a future. So right now, we're trying to make Slam Nuba as sustainable as possible, as community involved as possible, and with as much potential to grow as possible. So right now we're in the process of finding a new home. Um, we're looking for places where, cause you know, you can go somewhere and pay money and rent and all of that, but having a space where you are collaborating with the owner of the space, where it's something where you're working together, I feel like that is much more sustainable than just being a person who rents uh, that space. So we're looking for collaborative spaces to have Slam Nuba. And while there are some collaborative spaces, there aren't a lot of like collaborative spaces that can hold like 100, 250 people. Yeah. Um, so we're definitely looking for that. But also incorporating uh, a second show to Slam Nuba because the last Friday of every month, that's dope, that's cool. But uh, only connecting on the last Friday of the month is not uh, as community friendly as it could be. So we're working on adding a second show, figuring out what day that can be and where, um, and also working on developing curriculum for Slam Nuba workshops, where people from the community can come, write together, improve upon their writing, um, and then go do the open mic, listen to a featured poet, and then the last Friday of the month, go to the open mic again, listen to a featured poet, and do a slam. Um, so having that cycle in place where people, where the whole entire community is involved, is involved throughout the month. Um, so that's really what we're working towards. And also um, in the workshops as well, developing people who can be part of the leadership of Slam Nuba. Because just having one person or two people run the entire organization for short periods of time and then having to start that all over again is not very sustainable. But always having that process where there's always someone or a group of people learning and understanding how the organization works and what they need to do. Um, really having a program where they develop that, where it's like, okay, do you want to run a venue? Let's do this, like, you know, um, work, like, few weeks, eight weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, long workshop where you go from understanding the basics of SLAM all the way to how to run a venue and all the way to how to, you know, keep a space sustainable and run that. Um, really making sure that everyone is involved in that. So it's not like, oh, the slam master is this high and lofty position where all of the knowledge is secret and we hold secret meetings and societies <laughs> and hoods and cloaks and things. I don't want it to be like that. I want it to be as transparent as possible so the community knows what's going on and at any moment, if someone were needed to move or whatever or leave or wasn't able to pick up somewhere there's always someone who can pick up and do that so the last slam you had was at Centro Suteatro is yes. that in the cards for the future of Muba or was that just a one time deal it might be um, 
right now the price was a little steep for us so we're also looking for places that are sustainable price wise just getting harder and harder in Denver it really is it is getting so much harder in Denver but um hopefully we can have a good sustainable partnership with Suteatro because they're an amazing theater and they do such great work in the community we love we definitely love to partner with them all right now the last question I ask everyone so you're walking along the beach <laughs> you trip over a magic lamp on yeah. the beach. Pick it up, you rub it three times, and a magic genie pops out and says you have one wish for Denver poetry. So tell me, what is your one wish for Denver poetry? Mm. That everyone would be fed and feel valued. How do you think we can accomplish that? And do you think everyone should be fed this way? I feel like there are certain people who dedicate their careers to poetry. There are some people who will come to the open mic night who will do the slam and then have that be part of their release, their artistic release, and um, in that way be fed energetically. But the people who are dedicating their careers to poetry in Denver, the people who are not just poets but also community leaders as well, um, the people who are really seeing that vision for Denver and doing that work, that they would be fed, that they wouldn't get burnt out, that Denver would be able to have something sustainable. And I feel like that is so possible, one, when people think beyond SLAM, and two, when a city backs their artists and believes in, you know, all of the things that art, that spoken word can accomplish. Um, I feel like that's extremely possible if I feel like it's definitely a social and a mental change where you have to shift from you have to shift value systems basically like what do you value do you value a society where people are confident where people work well together where people where there's art everywhere and you know and it's sustainable do you value that or do you simply value churning out money so and if you only value turning out money it's kind of come to the point i feel like we're at the point in the nation's history and in the country in the state where it's if you do not support the arts right now you will not have it in the future because it's always one of the first things to go because mm -hmm. you can't make a lot of money off it exactly <laughs> you can't really turn but people if they really see and understand what a world without art without poetry could look like I don't I feel like that is where the shift happens where you actually have to think okay what does art what do poets contribute to our society if they're not being fed if they get burnt out and they're not able to do this anymore what happens to the art then it doesn't survive and a society without art I don't think I don't really think societies can exist little bit of a looser connection to this one of the big watershed moments in not just like minor disturbance history but in Denver poetry history was in 2010 when the youth team read scores on the final ah, stage yes. and it was one of those where like they kind of like used the format to achieve a greater purpose do you think like what, what's the the next example of that's gonna be like for Denver poetry how can you actually make that change what do you think I mean, I feel like 
there are already models of that nationally. Like at Cupsy, uh, the poets decided to uh, <laughs> boycott Mark Smith, who had said some things. Um, I feel like it just takes groups of people who are supportive of each other enough and brave enough to say, okay, look at this art form that we're doing, spoken word. You don't just go to a slam and do that or whatever. You can use it as a platform to change whatever you need to. Like, as a poet, you can go, like, the most simplest uh, example would probably be going out and doing guerrilla poetry. Like, going out and making sure that the poetry stays in the public and, like, taking it to streets. There could be... that. That's a very basic, simple, con like, visual concept of it. But then... Thinking outside of slam, I think, is one of really the most important things because poetry can go anywhere. You can go anywhere and everywhere. It can go music. It can go visual arts. It can go teaching. If you are a poet and you are an educator, using your, your writing form, your artistic expression to also educate the youth, um, I feel like is something that is extremely important and extremely doable. Um, but then also just making sure that, not even making sure, but I don't know, I just see there are so many possibilities. Like I have a friend who is a poet who also works with the UN. A friend who is a poet who like, you know, you can get all of these gigs or whatever just by approaching them. Because I feel like people now are valuing poetry differently. They are seeing now people going out and doing different things with poetry, making commercials, making videos, all of that, using their voice outside of one confined space and one night. Um, I see that and I feel like that needs to continue. I don't think there, in terms of new things or new ideas, um, I feel like there are so many people already who are formatting and doing that work that just going out and seeking that seeing researching how pe people are doing poetry differently what people are doing with poetry bring that implement that into your city however you want in a new and innovative way take it spin it off make it fit with your city you know and like there's just so much you can do with it <laughs> when do you think we get our first slam poet elected official well, and follow up. When are you gonna run? Ha! <laughs> uh, I just uh, put in my hat for the Commission on Cultural Affairs. Okay. Uh, I've never really been interested in public office, but like anything with leadership, at some point you get exasperated and you're like, ah, no one else is doing it. I might as well <laughs> just do it. Um, but I feel like it's coming up very soon. Maybe in the next five to ten years, we'll see a poet who is an elected official. Absolutely, of course. Okay. Well, is there anything you wanted to plug or endorse before I turn the report off? Um, come to Slam Nuba the last Friday of every month. Uh, look us up on Facebook. Check out our page. Also, this space that we are doing this lovely interview in is called Akente Express. Um, it is off of Park Avenue and Curtis, 919 Park Avenue West. Um, we have, this is your African store essentials. All of the skincare, smell goods, whatever you need, 
come by and do that. And also you can come visit me. It's a really great vibe. Well, thank you very much to our interview this week. Todu wa. <laughs> we will be seeing you at Slam Nuba and, of course... We go ahead. We do go Another fantastic interview here on the Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Thank you so much again to Todu wa. And it was it was a, a bit of a, a task getting that interview pinned down and finally put down, but I think it was well, well worth it. So thank you once again to Todu wa for allowing me to come in and give you an interview and just letting me know all the things about all the things. A lot of really good insight into the good, the bad, and the ugly of being on a slam team here in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Sometimes things work out perfectly magical, and you have a a transformative experience with people who you are going to be connected to for the rest of your life. And sometimes it's a little tumultuous, and sometimes it can be a little rocky. But that's part of what I'm going to talk about here in this next bit. So here is where we get to my take on some things. Uh, the first topic that I want to talk about brought up, these were almost all brought up by Angela Nicole, by the way. Uh, again, I put up a Facebook thread and just asked people if they would like my take on any particular thing to do with poetry. And Angela was really the only one who came through on this, aside from, of course, Cactus, which we will get through. So if we ever do this again... You should be my friend on Facebook, Eddie Eifler, E-I-F-L-E-R. And whenever I put one of these threads up, if there's a burning question that you've got or if you would like to know my take on something, just let me know. I haven't decided if I'm going to make these a regular part of the show, but if I do, that is the best way to contact me is through my Facebook page. So without any further ado, let's get into it. The first thing that Angela Nicole wanted to talk about were times when people got booed off stage. I've seen this happen a handful of times. Uh, almost always at the Mercury Cafe. The earliest one I can remember is way back, I want to say in either 2004 or 2005, in the first year or year and a half after I really started doing this, there was a poet who used to come around who went by the stage name of Senseless. And I have no idea what this person's actual real name is or was. Uh, All I know is Senseless. And Senseless maybe had a bit of a drug problem. I don't know. I don't want to diagnose, but there was something definitely amiss about this poet named Senseless. He had slammed a couple of times, never really gotten out of the first round, until one day he gets up on stage at the Mercury Cafe in the slam. You know, who's the next person? Welcome to the stage. Senseless! He grabs the microphone. The first words out of his mouth are, Ooh, girl, I love your titties. And the crowd lets him have it. They start booing, banging on tables, getting loud. And he, without going into any more of what he was going to say, says, Well, all right, fuck it then. And drops the microphone and walks off stage. I never saw him again after that. And that was more than a decade ago. Uh, Another times, other times where this happened were almost always when someone was racist or misogynistic. Uh, The next time, the next big time that I can remember this happening is round about in 2004, um, maybe 2005 before the team got picked. But it was a it was a bizarre night. We had KRS One randomly wander into the Mercury Cafe. Just hey, I'm in town. I'm in Denver. I was told this is a good place to get a piece of salmon, and now here I am on a Sunday at the Mercury Cafe, KRS-One. And the other big important part about this story is that we had a feature. 
named Queen Sheba out of Charlotte, North Carolina at this time. Uh, Queen Sheba is a very powerful, strong, outspoken black female poet. And went up, you know, she did her set. She even, like, sent a couple of barbs back and forth between KRS-One. She said, hey, I got this book for, for everyone, it's $10, but for KRS-One, it's $50. And everyone got a good laugh out of that. And he said, oh, it's okay, I don't mind spending MTV's money. Those two had a little bit of a back and forth, but it was all in good fun. During the slam, this young white female poet gets up on stage named Sarah with a C and starts doing her poem about how she has been called a pink n-word by her friends and as soon as she dropped that you know she she said the entire word as soon as she dropped that Queen Sheba and the table she was sitting at let Sarah have it they they start pounding on tables booing viciously um, Sarah did make it through her poem, so I guess this doesn't technically count as getting booed off stage. She did finish her poem, but she had to endure that literally for the rest of that poem. I want to say for a solid two minutes, she was getting just booed relentlessly. She comes off off stage, she's crying, she's got tears in her eyes, doesn't understand why, and it was because you shouldn't have said that word. And anyone being misogynistic, we had a, a gentleman who used to come around can't even remember this guy's name. This was only a couple of years ago. Who went up and did a poem about Kim Kardashian, where he starts talking about her being a bimbo and how he doesn't like it and why doesn't she just get a brain already? And he gets booed because he's basically talking about like why doesn't she conform to my standard of beauty or of appealing? And if she doesn't do that, then it's inherently bad. And, you know, I'm not a fan of Kim Kardashian, but I'm not going to tell her, like, what she's doing is wrong or that she shouldn't be famous or whatever, you know? You, you make your money how you make your money. This guy goes up on the stage and starts saying that, like, her and people like her are inherently bad because they are famous for reasons he does not deem worthy. And he gets booed really hard. He makes it maybe through halfway of his poem, and he walks off stage. Afterward, he starts posting stuff in the Mercury Cafe Facebook talking about how it's unfair, he got treated unfairly, and he doesn't understand why, and wants to open up this dialogue. And so I opened up the dialogue, and the internet community really let him have it, talking about all the ways in which he screwed up, and if he wants to come back, then he's going to have to address a lot of stuff about himself. So those are just a couple of quick stories about people getting booed off a stage, this actually leads me into a couple of times where the audience was inappropriate toward the poet on stage or during a poem on stage. So this uh, booing off stage, like a poet being inappropriate and getting booed off stage, it, it's a two-way street. It works both ways. I've seen a bunch of drunk audience members engaging the poets or the poetry in very inappropriate ways to the point of walking on the stage while the poet is still there doing a poem and engaging them physically. Uh, with a hug or with, like, throwing something at them. I've seen that a number of times, and we've had to escort these people out of the building, and I don't think I've ever seen them there again. Uh, that's happened a number of times. I've seen a judge, specifically one time, a judge told a black female poet who was in the slam that he would pay her money to watch her eat. You heard correct. A judge 
told a f- black female poet competing in the slam that he would give her money just to watch her eat something. That was extremely inappropriate. It's, I mean, just in life, really. Like, that's that's not something you do to a complete stranger. But the fact that he was a judge in the Poetry Slam made it all the worse. Uh, there was another very famous time where Lady Speech got up during the open mic and does what Lady Speech does. Very empowering, very, like... Oh, yeah, the the poem that she was reading was uh, Go Ahead and Suck Your Own Dick. And talking about, like, if you don't like it, then you go home and suck your own dick. And that was kind of a refrain that she would put throughout this poem. And she started getting heckled by this old white guy in the back of the room. And he started just yelling at her from the back. And a couple of people tried to go to her aid. Lenny Chanella tried to go to her aid. And she was like, no, 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 Lenny, I got this. And sat him down, and, like, they had a dialogue from the stage and the audience where they were yelling at each other. When she finally does get finished, I thought they were going to damn near get into a fight. And I did not like his odds in a fight with Lady Speech. They went off to the side toward the entranceway at the Mercury Cafe. He starts yelling at her about being a racist. And she starts yelling at him about being a racist. And Park Hill and her Park Hill started coming out. And he was like, oh, well, you want to sell this the Park Hill way? Let's take it outside. She's like, all right, I'll break your damn neck. And then, like, things were coming to a head. I was standing there just, you know, catching Lady Speech's back, making sure nothing crazy or ridiculous happened. But then the most amazing thing was born from this. Uh, Marilyn McGinnity, the owner of the Mercury Cafe, catches wind that there's a confrontation. She walks out very calmly. She assesses the situation. She grabs this old white gentleman by the arm, not, like, gently, but not firmly either. She just kind of, like, takes him by the arm, stands him up, leads him outside, is talking with him for a little while, walking with him, and then puts him, what must have been under some kind of magic spell. And he gets to a point where they're walking down the sidewalk, away from the building, and she veers off to the left... He keeps on walking straight, continuing to talk as if he's still having a conversation with Marilyn. And I've never seen him again since then. That if, if anyone doubts that Marilyn McGinnity is magic, then I offer that story up as proof that, that she absolutely is. Uh, and myself, I've got one particular horror story about almost getting to a fight with an old drunk guy at a bar in Old Town Littleton. This was... A number of years ago, I want to say 2006, maybe 2007, when a young lady who used to come around, I don't even remember her name, she used to come around the poetry scene for just a very brief couple of months, but she was in school at the time, and she wanted to put together an art gallery, and she wanted to have music and poetry in this art gallery, and she asked myself, Ian Doggerty, Polly Lippman, uh, Rob C., uh, maybe a couple of other people. KDFS, I think, was maybe in on that. So this might have been 2005, 2006. So we go down there, and almost always, when we have conflict in Poetry Slam, the idea of Poetry Slam, it's because someone is trying to put poetry into a venue that is not used to having it. And that was absolutely the case with this old bar in Old Town Littleton. You have a spot where a bunch of established older white guys feel entitled to that spot because it's my bar i've been going here for 10 years and you can't tell me it's not my bar and i get the same drink and the bartender knows me and yada 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 and you try to put something different into that 
context, then you're going to get problems. So this this particular guy takes offense at one of Ian Dougherty's poems, 1971, which is all about American terrorism, the definition of terrorism, and what it means to be conservative, and what kind of harm that is doing to the country. And this gentleman stands up after this poem's over and makes a spectacle out of himself and says, I don't give a shit about any of this. And he waves his arms really big, and he makes it very well known that he hates what's going on. And he sits back down on the bar stool. Well, I'm the host of the whole thing, so I have to keep pushing forward. And it just so happened, by circumstance, that it was my turn to read a poem after that. So I start reading a poem after that. And this guy, still taking exception to the situation, stands up off his bar stool and comes face to face with me. Like his face is maybe six inches from my face. And he's not actually doing anything physical but he's definitely trying to provoke me into doing something physical with him he's got his hands behind his back but his face is very close to mine and he's puffing his chest out like he wants to start some kind of fight i ended up not getting into a fight with that guy but the the possibility was definitely there i think after i was done it was kind of a signal to him and, and maybe some of his buddies like grabbed him and took him away knowing that if he were to stay there then things would be bad So it's not just inappropriate things going from the uh, audience to the from the poet to the audience, but sometimes it happens from the audience to the poet as well. The next topic I want to address, again from Angela Nicole, is going to be pros and cons to teams repeating the same members year after year. Uh, This has gone on ever since there were consecutive years at a national poetry slam level. You're going to have teams that repeat members. You're going to have teams that get all new members. Uh, the New Yorican Poets Cafe, I'm not sure if it still works this way, but for a very long time, you can only be a member of that team one time. And if you were a member of that team, you were not eligible to be on it again. They only wanted new voices and, and new poets to be on that team. Uh, in contrast, you've got, let's say, Albuquerque, who has had a very established core of poets for a long time. You've, you can pretty much guess before the team is even picked some of the names that are going to be on that team, and you're more or less correct every single year with the with the outlier. Like for this year, uh, one of their, their poets, their city champ, is someone brand new to National Poetry Slam. So that's crazy. But some of the pros behind this are that these poets, they bring experience and leadership, especially for younger or newer poets. And that's important. It's important to have an experienced veteran to help guide and temper the team. They act as almost a player coach in that regard. So that way when some of the newer poets, the younger poets, uh, don't know what to do, they, they can turn to one of those poets who's been on a team for a couple of years running. And, and it's a good touchstone. It's a good lighthouse for them. Uh, these poets, these ones that have been on the same team year after year, they usually have deeper pockets to pull from than newer or inexperienced poets. And that helps when writing group pieces. It helps for planning strategy. You know what you're going to get from those team members. And... Even if, like, even if, say, they've got a, an individual poem that is not in consideration for them to do individually, a lot of times that can start the conversation for a group piece, or you can take some writing out of that poem that you're not going to use by yourself and then put it into a group piece. And so uh, it, it really makes that process a lot smoother when it comes to writing scripting group pieces or for strategy. And once the National Poetry Slam actually starts... They can be a great help. They can be a great guiding force 
for the new members. They can help introduce new members to other poets. They can let them know who to avoid. They can let them know what events to really that they don't want to miss, like what day events or, or night events outside of the competition would be really good for those new poets. And they can help calm down these, these inexperienced poets before about and just let them know that, like, hey, it's, it's just like a slam at home, only it's in a different city, and you've got the support of your team behind you now. So there are, there are good things. There are a lot of pros to having consistent team members on the same team year after year. There are some things that can work against you. Some of the cons is that they can sometimes be resistant to new ideas or a different way of doing things, like, like practicing or coaching or staging, writing, strategy. Once a veteran poet has experienced success in a certain area, it's very easy to keep wanting to replicate that success even if it's maybe not the best thing to do for the rest of the team. Uh, maybe practices need to be run a little bit differently because the new team members will respond to a different type of practice environment. Maybe the coaching needs to change up because new members don't respond to the old ways of coaching. When you're talking about actual writing and staging of the poems, uh, a, a veteran can really help guide those younger poets in that realm, but they can also tend to be resistant to those younger poets when they... And these younger poets try to offer up new and different ideas. And, of course, with strategy. A lot of times, the older poets, they can feel... I don't want to say this for, for everyone, but a lot of times, they can feel entitled to certain spots of strategy. They can feel entitled to that indie spot every single bout. And then everyone else has to kind of figure out group pieces. But since I've been doing this for a long time, and since I'm the veteran, and I've quote-unquote earned that, and that may not be the best thing for the team. Sometimes they can also get pigeonholed by the national community. And the narrative of other teams or other poets in the national scene can be like, oh, oh, this person is on that team again? Well, that means that team will probably do uh, this, this, and this. And you can kind of get typecast or pigeonholed into a specific style or a specific thematic topic or a, a way to write something or a cadence. And that can, that can work against you as well. And finally, other team members can start to emulate that poet's writing or performance style without even realizing it. Uh, you can definitely see this in both the Mercury Cafe and its Slam Nuba. There are still shades of Panama Soweto even in the 2017 Slam Nuba team. You know, you can still see his influence on that team, even though he hasn't been a part of it for years uh, to today. You can still see influences of Ken and Andrea and Katie Worsing and Ian Dougherty on the Mercury Cafe team, even though they haven't been a part of the team in a number of years. You can still see their influence on that team. And so that, that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. You know, it, it's, it, it can help strengthen the team in that that's one thing they can lean on, but it can also make it seem homogenous instead of allowing that team to express themselves from a more individualistic standpoint. They can lean on these old ways of doing things and just kind of call that the day. So that's the pros and cons of teams repeating the same members year after year. Angela Nicole also wanted to know about some pros and cons of being on a slam team. I've asked a couple of interviews this same question, but I said that I would try to take a stab at answering it for myself. Uh, start off with the pros. Some of the, the really good things about being on a slam team is that it's a creative experience unlike any other. You know, Ken Arkine used to compare it to joining a band that practices and rehearses all summer long only to play one big show at the end. And once that show is over, 
the band breaks up, and you may or may not ever see those band members again in that same context. And that can be a bittersweet thing. You know, you, you spend all this time, you spend months and hours just creating these group pieces and working on these indies and, and being around these people and, and drafting these relationships that once it breaks up, once it ends, it can be a little tough trying to go back to the status quo, the way things were. But that's part of the magic of being on a team is that it, it is a finite experience. Everyone on that team knows what you're working for and that once that goal is achieved, then the ride's over and you got to go back to living life. So I think that can instill a, a carpe diem type of mentality, a let's make this last while we have it, and to me that's always a pro. Uh, also, you can really become more than the sum of your parts. When you're on a team, you can do things that you yourself would not normally do or, or ordinarily do. Other team members can pull different writing or performance styles out of you that you didn't know that you had. Group pieces are very often more dynamic than individual performances. And it's a chance in a healthy way to let your peers critique your own work so that you can get better. This all, of course, provided that you are in a space to allow that to happen. Some poets, it's very hard to give them that critique, that feedback, because they are so connected to the poem. Obviously speaking, like, this is a part of me. This is a part of my experience. So if I get a negative critique on that, it's like a negative critique of me and my experience. So it can be tricky. But for poets who can work within that context it is it is a good way to get that feedback to get that critique in a healthy way in a in a way that just wants to reinforce that this is really good we just want to make it better and finally memories 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 even if they're bad memories they're still valuable i've had really really great life shaping experiences on a slam team I've had really, really awful life-shaping experiences on a slam team. They're both equally valuable to me. Uh, those experiences, those memories, even the bad ones, I wouldn't trade them because they're lessons, and, and you take them with you and you learn from them. So the memories themselves, even from a bad experience, can be a definite pro. Now, some of the cons about being on a poetry slam team almost always arise from differing philosophies. Uh, this can be different philosophies between team members or between a team and a coach or a coach and a specific team member. This is almost always where conflict stems from. And some examples of this are when the team themselves can't figure out what the goals are of that team. If they want to go for a win, if they want to do as good as they possibly can do in the competition, or if they want to just go as wild, crazy, expressive, out-of-the-box as they possibly can and try to, like, shape the conversation or, or be remembered without actually winning. Uh, those are not mutually exclusive, but oftentimes when you do one, you have to sacrifice the other. And oftentimes, when a team sets out for one goal and they don't accomplish it, Whatever that may be, what if you want to win, if you want to do as, as good as you possibly can and you don't do it, there are bad feelings there. And if you want to just change the game, if you want to be as crazy, creative, expressive as you possibly can, but then you don't even end up making it out of your prelim bouts, then there's a, a, a bitterness to that as well. So it's it's a tough philosophy to thread, and especially when those philosophies are in conflict, when the team members have different... Uh, goals or, or different ideas about how Nationals is going to be, 
that's really where conflict can arise from. Uh, another example of this is in philosophies of coaching styles. Well, this is like if you uh, believe in the philosophy of sitting out a poet in a specific bout versus if you are a coach who wants every poet to touch the stage in every bout. Those are things that can create conflict if not everyone's on the same page, speaking from experience. Um, in 2012, I sat out in a, in a bout, in our second prelim bout, and it felt shitty. It felt awful to not be able to have a chance to contribute to my team's success. We ended up doing well in that prelim bout. The team ended up winning that prelim bout. But, man, did I feel just awful that I didn't have a single hand in helping that. And that has stuck with me for a long time. Uh, on the other hand, every if everybody touches the stage every single bout, you might have... A poet who, from a slam perspective, is a little bit weaker than the other poets. They might not score as well. What, or what are you going to do with that poet? Are you going to try to hide that poet in a group piece, try to minimize the impact? Are you going to uh, give that poet an individual spot so that you can use uh, other stronger pieces? It, it's, it's tough. It, it can be a, a daunting coaching decision to make. My personal philosophy is everybody touches the stage in every bout. Because you win as a team and you lose as, lose as a team. But not every coach has that particular philosophy. Uh, another philosophical difference that can cause conflict is everyone gets an individual poem versus only a few team members get an individual poem. Um, some people feel like everyone should get to read an indie poem. And then you just kind of fill in your group pieces wherever they work. Other people, other coaches and teams say that no. We are a group piece first, and then we'll fill in individual poems as we need to. And then at that point, like, who gets an individual poem? Who gets to read solo on stage and who doesn't? So that can be where conflict can lead to, especially if all the people involved are not in agreement or if people say one thing but they actually feel another. If they say, you know what, no, I don't care about winning. Let's go ahead and just be crazy and, and creative and wild when deep down, yeah, they really would like to do well in this competition. And they're not honest with that. They're not honest with themselves, their team members. It can lead to conflict. Another con in being on a slam team is that it can be difficult trying to find time to meet, especially in an adult team. One thing that I've learned from interviewing members of, of youth teams, of minor disturbance, who then went on to be members of adult teams, is that is the most jarring difference between the two that when you're on a youth team, you have a lot more disposable time. You have a lot more free time to meet up because even if you do have a job, it's probably not a full-time job. And you probably don't need to worry about making rent that month. You know, your parents probably got that. Your mom or your dad or whoever. So it's a lot easier to meet when you're on a youth team than it is when you're on an adult team because when you're on an, an adult team, you got bills to pay, you got rent, you got cars, you got all these different things pulling away from the team. So it can be tough. And finally, another big con on being part of a national poetry team is that egos can get inflated, pride gets bruised, friendships definitely get tested, because it's, it's half work and half play. And with these friendships, if you are used to all play, when, it time, when the time comes to get that work done, it can strain. It can be jarring, it can be different. Of course, egos, you know, we talked about Sometimes veterans feel entitled to certain things. If I'm a veteran, then maybe I feel entitled to read an indie poem every single bout. 
and then you guys just figure out how the rest of the bout's going to go. Uh, maybe if I didn't get an indie or if I, if I got sat down for a bout and I didn't get to perform one single poem for a bout, then my pride gets bruised, my pride gets hurt. So these are all cons. These are all things that, that can happen being on a poetry team. And since I don't want to end on a negative note, we're going to end up talking about the great and almighty Cactus. Because uh, he put on there that I he wanted to hear my take on him. So here we go. Uh, I first met Cactus when I moved to Las Vegas back in 2007. It was late in the year. It was uh, October 2007. My first impression of him was that he's this big, gruff, abrasive guy. Like, he can be very off-putting, especially the first time you meet him. But really, the more you get to know him, he's got this, like, gooey center to him. He, he really is sentimental, and he really is a softie when it goes down to it. His poetry is very visceral, sometimes bordering on offensive, but I think that's just a part of his no-nonsense philosophy on life. He does not mince words. He will tell it like it is or how he perceives it to be. He will give you his opinion. He doesn't care what you think about it, and a lot of his poems mimic that philosophy. And one of the things that I appreciate the most, one of the best redeeming qualities about this, this human known as Cactus, is that he rides all day for other poets. Back in 2012, I was at the National Poetry Slam, and I believe that was the first time he got to go and compete. I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure that was his first year competing on a national level. One of the big reasons for that was that A.J. Moyer moved to Las Vegas and really helped cultivate that scene, became a slam master, really organized it. He was also on that team. And I remember reading AJ's breakdown of that year's nationals and reading that he wanted to nominate Cactus for the Spirit of Slam Award because he constantly saw Cactus making sure other poets were safe, they were taken care of, they felt warm and welcome. There was, another, there was a story about uh, a young poet got too drunk to walk home. Uh, got passed out, blackout drunk. So Cactus literally like hoisted this poet on his shoulders, took her back to her hotel room, made sure she was safe, dropped her there, and then closed the door. And that's not something a lot of other people would do. And to me, like that's one of the best things that I could possibly say about Cactus, is that he he rides all day for other poets, regardless of circumstance, regardless of who you are, or what you feel about him, or what you don't feel about him. He is going to get your back. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed this week's Mile High Poetry Slam podcast. Next week, we are presumably going to have a slam to cover, to break down. But if you would like more stories, then hit me up. Let me know. Social media. Even if you are listening to this in Germany. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? All right. Get a translator. Sprechen Sie English? God, I'm, I'm offending so many people right now. But like the, that's the great thing about this. That's a great great thing about podcasts. It's a great thing about the interactive nature of the global world in which we live. If you want to know something, all you got to do is ask. Um, I'm going to ask you if there's anything more you would like to know. All you got to do is respond. A couple of quick hits before we get out of here. We are still looking for volunteers for the National Poetry Slam when it comes to Denver. If you would like to volunteer, all you got to do is go to npsdenver.com. Click on the Get Involved tab and then sign up to be a volunteer. This Sunday at the Mercury Cafe, since we did not have the youth team send-off last Sunday, we pushed it back to this Sunday. So that means on July 16th, you are going to have your Minor Disturbance youth team send-off. This is going to be the last show 
that they do before they go off to Brave New Voices in California. So come out, uh, support the team, let them know you got your back, and let them know that, that they represent all the best of Denver. So yeah, I want to say thank you to Angela Nicole for giving me these topics, these questions. Thank you to Cactus. Thank you to Matt Zambrano and Elijah Lynch. And as always, remember that the points are not the point. That the poetry is not the point. That the point is, was, and always will be the people. We'll see you next week, everyone.